Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good to us, um, even on difficult days like this one. You are here, and uh, I just want to invite my family into what I've been saying to myself throughout the day, um, that I'm going to rejoice in today, for it is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice and I will be glad in it. And I pray that your spirit would come and encourage us, help us to to hear your word, not the words of a man, but the words of God, and help those words, Father, by your spirit to penetrate the deep recesses of our souls so that we might look like Jesus. That's all we ever want from you. That's all we ever really need, ultimately, is to look like your son, to be conformed into his image. And so I I plead with you that you would do that now for me and for my friends here today, Father, for the sake of your son. Amen. Well, we are here at the end of our our time together as a church family, which is hard on a lot of levels. It makes me really sad. Um, It's easier to say those words in the days coming up, thinking about this sermon than it is to actually taste them here with you for obvious reasons, but our church's time, its course, has, has run, and now we are looking ahead as a, a church family, but also as individuals, as families, to whatever God might have for us in the years to come, whether it's hard or whether it's easy, whether it's staying here, whether it's scattering, whether it's whatever it looks like, um, that's where we're headed, and God's hand will guide us there. We're confident of that. We know his word. We know his promises. And the reality is that there's no better place in the universe to be than in the will of God. Every other place is precarious, but the will of God isn't. Whether it's filled with laughter or tears, whether it's a season of rest or a season of toil and hardship, there's no better place than the path that he's marked out for us. And I know that I say that to people who believe it because I've been with you the last four and a half years. And so uh, as we spend this final Sunday together, keep that in mind um, that the Lord's going to be our shepherd in 2022 and 2023. And however long he tarries, he will still be our shepherd every year into eternity. And as we saw last week, we are called to live in light of a hope that one day we will be united. We will be together in the presence of our King forever, never to part again, never to part again. So whatever happens today, whatever it feels like to you today, it isn't goodbye. Christians between each other do not know that word. It's not in our vocabulary because we will have eternity with each other and with our Lord. Uh, But with that, let me say one last time, if you have your Bibles, And I hope you do. I know you do. You better. Please take them and turn with me to 2 Timothy 4, 9. I'm going to make it through this sermon. It's going to be great. We're going to read um, from 2 Timothy 4, 9 all the way through to the end of the chapter. It's verse 22. And as you know, this is Paul writing to his Beloved spiritual child, Timothy, Paul is awaiting his own execution, presumably in Rome. Timothy is in Ephesus, and these are Paul's closing words 
in this book, this last epistle chronologically that he wrote in the New Testament. Begins with verse nine. He says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Putins and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. So at, at first blush, you may be tempted to do what many do, what, what I did when I first read this passage, and that is thinking, what's going on here? This is like a scattershot of seemingly unrelated requests and greetings. And in a way, it is. That's not just some sort of superficial thing. It's all of those things. Paul always closes his letters with a variety of greetings, like very practical, logistical components. So this isn't by accident. It's by design, and yet it is deeply meaningful and richly theological in nature. And I want to just, at the start, lean on one aspect of this that should be readily apparent to, to everyone, that Paul and those he mentions here are real people, like you and I. They have real lives, real pain, real difficulty separating from each other. That's experienced by them. Paul wants to see Timothy one last time before he dies. That's normal. Paul's been abandoned by some of his closest friends. That hurts. And Paul gets cold. And he wants to read his books. These are things we can relate to. This, this, this section underscores a simple fact that these people are real people like you and I. They're not fiction. They're not fantasy. They're not superheroes. They're real human beings, just like us. They had lives that look a lot like ours. And the realness is especially present in these closing words. And so what I want to do with this section here is I want to make a few expository observations in the flow of the text. And I want to um, then center up around the primary thrust, the main message of this section of scripture. 
and allow that to carry us to a text you will be, God willing, very familiar with. So right off the bat here, look at verse 9. He tells Timothy, and it's going to probably seem quick that we're going through these text, this text, but you'll see why in a second. He tells Timothy that he desires for him to come to him. Verse 9, do your best to come to me soon. Timothy is presumably at Ephesus where, like we said earlier weeks, he's pastoring the church there, and, and he needs to come all the way to Rome where Paul is, where he's being held before his execution. In fact, in verse 21, you see he says, do your best to come to me before winter. I don't want anything to keep you from coming to me. Come. He wants Timothy near him. And so this is huge because I've really emphasized, and I think rightly so, you should judge it and test it to see if I'm right about this, but I've really emphasized the rigor of Paul's exhortations throughout the letter to, to, for Timothy to be faithful in the face of suffering for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of King Jesus. But there's still this fact, Paul loves Timothy. He loves him. He doesn't just want to write this letter. He wants to write the letter and then come to me. I want to see you with my own eyes for one last time before I step into the presence of my Savior. And that's why he writes this section. And we see why, why meeting with Timothy is especially important to Paul. He has been abandoned by those closest to him. Demas, who we've seen in other letters in the past, who is in love, Paul says, with this present world, has deserted him. And in that same breath, he mentions Crescens and Titus, who have also left, though the reasons there are unclear. We don't know for sure why they left. He ends that statement with just a short statement, Luke alone is with me. Luke alone, out of all of them, is here. And Paul's point here in saying this to Timothy is those he has loved, those he has poured his life into, have left him when things got really hard. We don't know why Crescens and Titus left. We don't want to assume too much about that. But it doesn't appear that they left because Paul wanted them to leave. And I say that because A, he doesn't say that here. And B, because he mentions Tychicus later, who he sent to Ephesus. And so whatever the reason was for this, he's alone except for Luke. And this is sobering because think about this. Titus in your Bible, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Titus is a person who was written to by Paul. Paul calls him the true child in common faith. And yet here, only Luke stays behind for whatever reason, Titus left. Which evidences again, this is real life. Nobody made this up. These are real people and these people have abandoned their friend and teacher when things got too tough. Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke and Acts, is the only one left. He's, he's Paul's physician. Probably stayed behind to repair Paul so that he could be able to write this letter. So Paul wants Timothy to come. He also wants Timothy to go and bring Mark, who is another author of the scriptures. You know him, John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Paul says here he is very useful for ministry. Now, this is remarkable. It may not seem that this is remarkable to you. He's like, okay, great, Mark's useful. Of course he is. He wrote a gospel. Well, this is a big deal for Paul because during Paul's first missionary journey in the book of Acts, Mark abandoned Paul and his uncle Barnabas at Pamphylia. He left to go back at home because 
Missionary life evidently was proving to be too difficult, and Paul was not thrilled by that. In fact, in Acts 15, if you read it, Paul refused to take Mark on his second missionary journey because he didn't want another repeat event. I can't have you just leaving me in the middle of all this. And he ends up parting ways with his closest friend, Barnabas, because of this issue about Mark. It says they had a sharp dis disagreement and they split. Mark and Barnabas went one direction and Paul and Silas went another. It's a very visceral part of Acts. And yet here at the end of Paul's life, an amazing statement by Paul, Mark is very useful to me for ministry. Bring him here. I need him here in these final hours. Apparently he was confident that Mark would not only, would not only be useful, but that he would come when everybody else is jumping ship, which says a lot about Mark and about Paul and their relationship together in the years that separated those two events. And then in verse 13, Paul does something very ordinary. He says, please bring my cloak. Please bring my cloak. Bring my books, bring my parchments. Parchments were how he wrote the letters to the churches. And these were apparently at Carpus. Uh, or with Carpus at Troas. Carpus was one of his buddies. And most scholars believe that's where he was arrested. We don't know for sure. That's where he was arrested, which is why he couldn't get to his cloak. He couldn't get to his books. They grabbed him. They took him to Rome. And that's where he is now, presumably. He's telling Timothy, please bring those. I love how ordinary this section is. Paul gets cold. That's awesome. Sometimes it doesn't feel like he gets cold when I read him. He gets cold like us. He needs to have a blanket. He likes to read and write. This is a real person and he can get hurt, physically hurt. Look at this, verses 14 and 15. Alexander the coppersmith harmed him, caused him great harm. We, we don't know if this is the same Alexander that we read about several weeks ago um, in 1 Timothy 1, who was this false Christian that, that Paul had to put out of the church in Ephesus, or if this was a specific person uh, in Troas, we know in Troas historically, at least historians know that there were coppersmith guilds. Um, we don't know uh, what the situation was. Getting a call. There we go. <laughs> we don't know what the situation was um, with this uh, Alexander the coppersmith. Uh, all we know is this. He caused Paul great harm. Maybe even led to what's going on right now, his execution. And Paul's response here isn't personal vengeance. He doesn't tell Timothy, go take the boys and let's do him in. Let's, get, let's pay him back for what he's done. What does he say here? He says, the Lord will repay him for what he's done. The Lord's gonna settle the accounts. I don't need to. And he wants Timothy though, to be careful of Alexander. Not mainly because he thinks Timothy's gonna get beat up. Mainly because he knows Alexander is opposed to the message, to the gospel. That's what he says here. Which really takes this last section in 2 Timothy and kind of gets underneath all of it and underscores what we've been saying since day one. This letter is primarily focused on Timothy not being ashamed of the gospel, not being ashamed of the message, the testimony of our Lord. It's focused on him being willing to share in suffering if that's what happens like it did with Paul, with this Alexander dude. 
Um, and, and Paul sees that this message, the gospel, is so critical that he, he's, he's okay. Like, I'm okay with inviting harm upon myself in order to preach it. My main concern, Paul would tell us, isn't my safety. You know, I don't want to be beat up. But it's my main concern isn't my safety. It isn't even Timothy's safety. My main concern is the gospel, that the word of God is proclaimed faithfully. He knows that eternities are caught up in whether or not the gospel is preached. If he's silent, people won't be saved. Think about that. If you don't tell them the gospel, there's no way that they can believe it. He knows this, which is made very evident in the next section. Look at verse 16. Paul says, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message, the gospel might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. His main focus is the message. His main focus is the gospel. And so even in the face of opposition, Paul's concern is that the message would be fully proclaimed and that all the Gentiles who are far from God, who don't even have an inkling of who God is and where he is and what he, what he expects from those he creates in his image, that they would hear this even if it cost him his own life, which it will. That was very clear last week. He's going to die. So this event, his first defense that he describes here may well be his trial before Caesar. We don't know. It may be the very thing that led him to be captive and led him to the point where he is going to be executed. Uh, And we really can't tell for certain, but we know that when he was defending himself here, he was alone apart from one person. One person. Who was it? Jesus. Jesus was with him. He says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that I could proclaim the gospel and so that the Gentiles might hear it. His only goal in this trial was that these people would hear the gospel. He could say anything to them, but his last words here are, can I tell you about a a man named Jesus? what he did for humanity on the cross. Now, before we we continue with this event here in these few verses, and we are, and I want to wrestle with what it means for us, I want to jump ahead through to the end of the text, starting in verse 19, and go to the conclusion of the letter, this series of of greetings. He mentions here Prisca and Aquila. These are two of his closer friends. They, uh, They were natives of Rome. He mentions the family of Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus was a man we saw earlier, right at the beginning of this letter, who who bravely sought out Paul when he got to Rome. He was not ashamed of Paul's chains. He mentions Erastus and Trophimus, and then he conveys greetings from Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and the brothers. These are all relatively straightforward. We don't, there's, there's not a lot of really work that needs to be done here. But again, the prime, primary reason for these being here is so that we know, we who have our Bibles in our hands know these, this is not make-believe. These are real people just like us. Real human beings. They appear throughout Paul's writings. And Paul, I don't even know how he does this, he has them on his mind while he's writing this letter in chains. 
If I was in chains, you know who I'd be thinking about? Me. He's exchanging greetings. I'm going to die in maybe a few days, a few weeks. Don't know. But I need to tell you that Putin sends greetings. That's amazing to me. It may seem trivial or mundane to us. This is not a logistical gesture. Paul is thinking of these people even here at the very end of his life. And he closes this letter with a statement in verse 22. Look at this. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Now, the second part of that statement should not be alien to any of us. This is how Paul always ends his letters. Some variation of grace be with you. And he does here. We mentioned weeks ago, as we looked at the the beginning of this letter, Paul opens his letters with grace to you. And he closes his letters with grace be with you. And the insinuation here is that what lies between the opening and the closing is the grace that he is talking about the very grace that he is, he is offering in this letter. Grace communicated through the letter's content by those who read it and believe it. So think about that. When Paul writes scripture in these epistles, he views the things he is saying by the spirit of God as grace to those who hear it. Grace to those who receive it. Grace that, that can penetrate the heart and change lives. And we encounter this grace. I mean, think about this. This is amazing. You want grace from the Apostle Paul? Plunge into the glorious ocean of the words of Scripture. Statements, stories, commands, and promises, all of these and this stresses one of, the, one of the pillars of our church, one of the main emphases of our church, that the Bible is sufficient. Scripture is sufficient. God uses these words to, to bring us grace, unmerited favor directed towards undeserving sinners. Grace isn't a magical download from heaven. That's not what grace is. God can strengthen us physically, but that's not what we need most. Grace, to experience grace, is to know and to be gripped by the reality of God. And that happens here in the book. There's no magic wand. There's no incantation. It's just words on pages. It happens in this book. The grace of God through his own words. Remember, Jesus said in John 6, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He meant that. Hear them. Listen to what I'm saying. Understand what I'm saying. Allow it to sink to the bottom of who you are and change you. So whether you think about the Bible in this way or not, I really want you to, to leave this church knowing that that's true. That's real. God's words are grace, which is why Paul led this statement, this verse, Grace be with you, with the Lord be with your spirit. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to Timothy, the Lord be with your spirit. It's one part prayer. It's one part a statement of fact. He knows this is going to happen. He's, he's saying, Timothy, the Lord be with you. I've prayed for it, and I know he's going to do it. In fact, earlier in the letter, 
in chapter two, verse one, you may remember this. Paul says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He sees grace coming from the Lord Jesus. And this grace, as we said, is given through his words, through his promises, through his encouragements. And this verse is Paul's last statement to Timothy here in this letter. The Lord be with your spirit. It may have been Paul's last words to Timothy, period. We don't know if Timothy ever made it. They could have came for Paul the next day. And by the time Timothy gets there, they're burying him. We don't know. But think about this. Paul is going to be executed. His days are numbered. He wants Timothy to remember one thing, to know one thing. Jesus is with you, Timothy. Jesus is with you and he's strengthening you right now. His grace through his words are coming to you. Even if I die, Paul says, what matters most isn't that Timothy has a ton of friends around him. What matters most isn't that he has an infrastructure or a platform for his ministry. What matters most isn't even that he has any resources, but one thing that he knows, Jesus will never, ever leave you, ever. Paul knows this personally. Paul knows this intimately which is what we saw in verse 16. So what I want to do now is I want to go back up to verse 16 and I want to just feel the weight of this event that Paul describes and the conclusion he comes to from it. Paul says that at his first defense, everyone left him, everyone abandoned him, everyone deserted him when he needed them the most. This is when you need somebody the most when you're on trial before the king of the planet, Caesar, the king of the known Roman empire, the known world. Now, I want, try to put yourself into his position too. It's not simply like a bunch of acquaintances split on me. These are people he's loved. These are people he's given his life to. And none of them come to his side. He prays here, may it not be charged against them wild prayer. What makes it even more interesting is that it echoes a prayer that happened earlier in the New Testament. It's the same thing that Stephen, the first martyr, prayed for those who were stoning him. Do you remember this? He prayed as he's being bludgeoned by stones. He prays, don't hold this against them. May it not be charged against them. Paul witnessed Stephen being stoned with his own eyes. He oversaw Stephen's stoning. And now he's the one who sang this for, on behalf of those who deserted him. He's asking God to forgive them for their cowardice. Forgive them. Give them mercy because they've left me during my greatest need. They've done me wrong. But have mercy on them. Don't hold it against them. And then he says precisely what we read earlier. The Lord stood by him. The Lord strengthened him when everybody else fled. This is the main thrust of this section. It's Paul's main point to Timothy. It comes underneath all that we've learned in this book and really comes underneath 
the last four and a half years and it supports it. It was the Lord who showed up in the courtroom with Paul. It was the Lord who strengthened him in that moment. Paul didn't shrink back. He didn't cower. And the reason wasn't because he was super strong. The reason wasn't because he was really awesome. The reason was because Jesus stood by him and the gospel was fully proclaimed and everyone heard it. The Gentiles, the nations, the very people that he had been sent to from day one. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And this is him at the end saying, I got sent to the Gentiles and I fully proclaimed the message of God's grace. From the first moment he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, this has been his life. And now, like I said, Paul's in this event is standing before probably the most powerful man on the planet, Caesar of the Roman Empire. And strength, courage, and resolve, not in him, but they're flowing to him from the presence of King Jesus like fire in his bones. And Paul stood firm. He didn't back down. He preached the gospel in the face of those who held his life in their very hands. And he says here, you know what it looked like? It looked like me being rescued from the lion's mouth. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. You're like, Paul, what are you talking about here? You are going to be executed. That's not rescue. And Paul's saying, I don't mean survived the meeting with them. That's not the rescue I'm talking about. I was rescued from the mouth of the real lion, Satan, the ravenous lion of 1 Peter 5, who devours the faith of people who profess Christianity. Satan didn't have his way with Paul in the end of this encounter. Paul was faithful to preach the whole gospel because Jesus was strengthening him in that moment, even in front of people who wanted him dead. And to Paul, this is rescue. This is what rescue looks like, to faithfully proclaim the gospel, to be sustained by the Lord Jesus. And so think about this. Paul leaves this encounter, this event, his first offense, goes into his cold prison cell, sits down with the certitude of execution on his mind and said, the Lord's rescued me. He rescued me. He stood by me and strengthened me by his grace to proclaim the gospel. And then verse 18 comes, Paul thunders in this letter. And I want you to listen very closely to this. This is the main, this is the main principle of this entire section of scripture. And it's massive. Paul says here, verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is Paul's conclusion to that event, his first events. He says, you know what happened? The Lord strengthened me and I was able to remain faithful and preach the gospel even when the world was falling apart around me, even when everything didn't make sense. He'd been completely abandoned by those he, he loved. He was alone, but he wasn't really alone. There was another person in the fire of judgment with him, and it was Jesus. The Lord stood by him. And maybe, maybe Jesus brought to his mind, you've been in situations where you just all of a sudden have a verse come to your mind, and it strengthens you. Put steel in your spine. Maybe it was Deuteronomy 31.6. 
Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Maybe that was the promise that was in his ears from the Lord Jesus. A promise from God for his people in the scriptures. And in that moment, when the world was giving way, when everything was caving in on him, Paul could hold on to this one thing in God's word. The Lord will never, ever leave me. The Lord will never, ever leave those who belong to him. I am safe in his hands. And in that moment, he was strengthened to boldly proclaim before his enemies. And now he's confident of this fact. Jesus is going nowhere. He's going to stand by me no matter what. No matter what happens, he isn't going anywhere. The Lord will rescue him from every evil deed, even his own execution. And he will safely bring me into his heavenly kingdom. This is Paul's confidence. This is what he knows to be true. It's not an idea he likes to think about. He knows it's true because he knows it from the scriptures where God has not only said that he's going to do it, but he's proven himself faithful to do it every single time. Not to keep Paul safe from danger. Let's get that clear. That's not being rescued from evil deeds. Paul's not safe from danger. He's going to die. The Lord's rescue is to keep him faithful even in the shadow of death. The evil deed he's kept from isn't harm or death. The evil deed is him falling away from Jesus and refusing to trust in the one who saved him. And his statement here is essentially saying, that's never gonna happen to me ultimately because Christ has me in his hands. He will see to it that I am brought safely into his heavenly kingdom. He's going to make it happen. He's gonna, he's gonna make whatever needs to happen in me happen in that moment. I trust him with this, even when that rescue is a brutal execution. It's a radical way to think about life. It's a radical way to live life. Paul is so confident in his being secure in the hands of Jesus that he's willing to experience any kind of suffering. Me saying that doesn't make it easier. Like I could say it in the ease and the comfort of this room. He's feeling it as his knees are on the cold cell floor and he's writing these words. He's for king and kingdom. Doesn't matter. Jesus is with me. Paul has the certainty of this gripping him and the, the, the certainty of it is so powerful to him that it causes him to break into a doxology and he begins to praise and worship God. To him be the glory forever and ever. Think about that. He's so gripped by this truth that Christ will keep me, that Christ will stand by me and keep me from stumbling, keep me from falling and make sure that I get home. So gripped by that, he can't help himself. He has to worship even in the middle of writing a letter. He doesn't stop writing. He just says, I'm gonna let you enter into the worship with me so you can see the joy in me right now as I think about it. It's called a doxology. It happens frequently in Paul's writings. And it happens uh, throughout the scriptures. It's just basically this. It's where, where we state a fact about God and the gravity of that fact that the gravity well of the truth that we are stating is so powerful that it draws us immediately into intense worship. 
That's what a doxology is. Even if we're in the middle of writing an epistle, we just start saying what we feel inside us about God and about Jesus. The pull, the tug is that strong. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Whatever happens to Paul, he knows this one thing. The Lord Jesus will never, ever leave my side, even as the blade comes down on my neck. And that truth causes him to worship. He knows Jesus, from the book of Proverbs, is actually the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Jesus is the one who promised, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And that sends him to his knees. And he says, I can't believe it. To him be the glory forever and ever. To him be the glory. We here at Risen Hope are familiar with doxologies, whether you realize that or not, every week. Before we end our time together, I recite a doxology, or whoever's teaching on that Sunday recites a doxology as part of our benediction. This is how we end our services each week. And the word benediction, just as framing, means blessing. So in our context, it's the people of God being sent out with a word of blessing. And for the last few years, really as long as we've been doing benedictions at Risen Hope, our benediction has been from Jude verses 24 and 25. You know this benediction very well. What I want to do for our last few moments as, as a church together is I want to just consider our benediction. I think it's fitting that we explore our benediction briefly on the final service of our church as a way to feel the weight of it when we have it later. And if you can recall it, you'll know that it's not unrelated to Paul's doxology at all. The benediction that we have is deeply related because both of them, both of them engage the same exact truth. In one, 2 Timothy, Paul is reflecting on what Christ will do specifically for him. He's thinking about himself. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. But in Jude, we see that same truth brought to bear for us, the readers. He applies it to us. Jude is saying in this benediction that I'm about to read, that Christ, that God in Christ Jesus will never leave us. He will see to it that we are brought blameless into the presence of his glory. Look at this, Jude, um, Jude has one chapter. So Jude verses 24 and five, 25. <clears throat> now to him, now to God. He's saying, before we even go any further, he's saying, now reader, look to your God. What I'm about to say to you is true about your God. He is these things. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Jude wants us to know what Paul is feeling. That's why we have this doxology here. That experience of knowing our God like this, that God will keep you. He's not going to let you go. 
So he says, now to him, turn your eyes to him. He's able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Look to him, Jude says, our only God and savior. He's the only one who can do this. That's why that word only is so helpful. He is the only one who can keep you like this and he's gonna do it through Jesus Christ, your Lord. He's gonna do it through his son. In other words, the Lord will stand by you and the Lord will strengthen you. Whether you're on trial before Caesar or whether you're looking for a new church family to join. The promise is the same for everyone who belongs to Christ. He is with you. Trust him. He's not going anywhere. Everyone else in your life might leave you. Everyone else. But he won't. He will never leave you. He will stand by you, his hand on your shoulder, his promises in your ear, and he will keep you from stumbling. This biblical truth of Christ's commitment to his people, if we look at across the entire corpus of scripture, there's one place where I believe, and I think you would agree, that it is brought to its apex, and that is Romans 8, as Paul contemplates what it costs God to send his own son to die for rebels like us. I want you to see how the gospel tells us that Jesus isn't going anywhere. The gospel is proof what Christ did on the cross, what God lost in his son on that day is proof that Jesus isn't going anywhere. Listen to this, verse 31 of Romans 8. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Name your enemy. There ain't any. He who did not, listen to this, spare his own son, but gave his precious son up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? And he continues with this question a few verses down. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation Shall distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword should faithfully proclaiming the gospel separate us from the love of Christ? Is that what's going to happen? Are we going to get separated from Jesus because we go out and we're bold about our witness? Or what about losing our precious church family? Is that going to separate us from the love of Christ? Paul would look at us in the eyes and he'd say, No. It won't ever separate you from the love of Christ. He says, in all these things and many more, anything you can conceive of, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Then he says, summarizes at the end, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Think about what he's saying. If God was willing to give up his own son, the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory, infinitely worthy, infinitely beautiful, infinitely perfect in every conceivable way, God gives him up on the cross in order to redeem 
us sinners. If he was willing to do that, why would we ever think that he would leave us? He's already done the hardest thing you can possibly do. What in the world is God not willing to do for us if he was willing to part with his own son? This is the promise of Romans 8. There is nothing in the universe that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, especially in the path of obedience to the gospel. This is why we we never need to be ashamed of the gospel because the one who has entrusted us to us Uh, entrusted it to us, has made a promise that he's not going to leave us or abandon us. And he's proven that he's going to keep that promise by giving his son. This single fact is able to sustain any Christian in the middle of persecution, in the middle of suffering, in the middle of cancer, in the middle of hardship. List your peril. This reality, this truth will hold you up in the middle of it above the tides of, of pain, above the tides of sorrow, the Lord will stand by you. It doesn't matter what people say about you. It doesn't matter what people say about you. It only matters on the final day what he says about you. And when he sees you being slandered, when he sees you maybe lose your job, when he sees you suffer in the middle of holding fast to him and his word, he will say to you in that moment, you belong to me, you're mine, I have you, and I'm not leaving you. I'm not going anywhere. I mean, when the Lord of the universe, the one who created the stars, When he tells you he's staying, he's staying. He's not going anywhere. You don't have anything to fear. He's promised to carry you all the way and he's going to do it. And this reality is what causes Paul and Jude to break into worship. There's no, there's no, I mean, of course they're going to have a doxology here when they see this for what it is, when they feel it in their, in their blood, And so after Jude, after telling uh, us that God is able to bring you before the presence of his glory with great joy, he goes into his doxology to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. In other words, what he's doing in the second part of his doxology is he's saying, listen, what God has by rights of who he is the divine creator and sustainer of reality. Jude is inviting us into affirming that truth in words of praise. It's true. Would you like to agree with it in worship? That's what he's saying. Think about this. God owns everything that has ever existed. He governs it all. It belongs to him, period. Belongs to nobody else. There's nobody on the other side of God. It's God and then nothing. Not even nothing, because nothing is a thing. God is where it all ends. He's always owned everything. He's always governed everything. He always will own everything. The point of these words in Jude's benediction is this profound reminder that God is able to keep us because nothing is able to stop him from keeping us. I made it all. 
It does what I say it does. And I promise to keep you from stumbling. I promise to bring you into my presence with great joy. So as we, as our time together comes to a close, I want to key in on just three words here, just for a few moments within our benediction. And I, I, I'm, I want God by the Holy Spirit to seal them into our hearts and minds. And those three words are at the end of verse 24. Look at them in Jude. The three words, very small, with great joy. With great joy. Not a lot of ink was, was placed on the page to write those three words. Think about Jude's writing the letter. He, he knows this. He writes it down with, in Greek, with great joy. There is an immensity of glory deeper than any of us can even imagine underneath those two words, three words. This is how God will present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He'll do it with great joy. This is eternity right here. Look at those words in your Bible. They're really small with great joy. Eternity is in those words. We are looking into the riches of God's grace and kindness to us through Christ Jesus when we read those words and believe them with great joy. It describes God's pleasure in all that he has done in creation and redemption to bring us to himself, but it also describes us. It describes you and me who will on that day be overwhelmed by a kind of joy that we cannot even conceive of. True joy. True joy. This is what Jesus means when he says that God will say to us in Matthew, when he tells that parable, in that parable, he says, well done. You, you come before God and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And then he says these words. Have you ever considered what he's saying here? Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of God. It's yours. With great joy. Proverbs 16.11 or Psalm 16.11. You, you've heard me say this over and over again. In your presence is fullness of Joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not pleasures for five years. Not pleasures for 500 years. Not pleasures for five trillion years. Forevermore. It's real. I want you to feel it. Unfettered, unending, unimaginable joy in our Savior. And this is the promise of Paul's final statement in, in 2 Timothy. This is what Luke's benediction is centered around this great joy that God will keep you from stumbling. God will take you into his presence. He will make sure, he will see to it that you are going to enter this joy. If you belong to him, if your faith is in Christ, that is true about you. No matter what you feel like on Monday, 
And this isn't just for our eternal gladness. This is for our eternal praise of God. And so what I want to do to close our time together and to close these last four and a half years as we go back into worshiping with song is a picture from Isaiah 55, the last two verses of this text. Isaiah 55 centers up, at the end of it at least, on the reality of this great joy that Jude is talking about. It is a promise to God's people, and I want you to hear it in your ears and hear it in your heart. This is the promise. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Isaiah is describing the day when Christ not only stands by us, but when he comes back for us to bring us into his heavenly kingdom, just like Paul was talking about. And when that happens, let me tell you right now, we shall go out in joy. In joy, we do not have even a framework for what this means. In that day, on the revealing of the sons and and daughters of God, according to Romans 8, creation will be set free from its captivity to corruption. And creation will will enter an experience of joy. That's what all of this vivid imagery is of the trees and the mountains singing and rejoicing. Creation itself will enter an experience of joy for which we have no earthly categories. And all of it, we and this experience of joy in creation will make a name for our God. It will be an everlasting sign that shall never, ever, 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 ever be cut off our joy in him will be that sign. And this is why the Lord has promised to stand by you no matter what. This is why he promises to not fail you to bring you into this. He has guaranteed you this and he has proven it out, God, by giving us his precious son. This joy is ours. It's what the last four and a half years is focused on. There's many other things, many other facets that we've looked at in these last four and a half years, but this is the ultimate one, that we will be with our King in great glory forever. Believe it. Believe it. You can bank on it. He's not going to allow you to stumble into falling. He will keep you blameless and bring you into his presence but for the glory of his presence with great joy. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful for 
the time that I've had with my friends. I'm grateful for the grace that you've shown me and them in opening up your word for us to see. I'm grateful for the promises that you've made to us in this book. And I just plead with you, Father, that you would help us as we experience the last few moments together here and then as we, as we move forward into the rest of our lives, Father, whatever that looks like, however many interactions we have with each other before we meet again on the other side of eternity in your presence, never to be parted with again. I pray that you would help us, Father, to feel this truth that the Lord has promised to stand by us and to strengthen us, that the Lord has promised never to leave us or forsake us, that if we belong to you, you're not going to let us go. No one can, can pluck us from your hands. Your grip's too strong. Help us feel the glory of that promise and may that inform every decision and interaction we make in our lives. I ask you this as I commend these people into your gracious hands. Please do this one thing, never leave us. May the Lord be with our spirits and may grace be with us. I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.